Hi, I'm Ashley, the host of Taboo and Murder. Today is October 26, 2018, and I bring you a special episode of Taboo and Murder. The American Terrorist, a taboo label. With violence surrounding us, why is it so hard to see terrorism when it's domestic? There is a taboo yet to be broken surrounding the American terrorist. The simple fact that he exists in large numbers across the nation. In an era where we want to label everything, why are we so reluctant to call a terrorist a terrorist? Certainly, it's not because of political correctness. Anyway, the statutory definition of domestic terrorism in the United States has changed many times over the years. Also, it can be argued that acts of domestic terrorism have been occurring since long before any legal definition was set forth. Under current United States law set forth in the USA Patriot Act, acts of domestic terrorism are those which a. involve acts serious to human life that are a violation of the criminal laws of the United States or of any state, b. appear to be intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population, to influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion, or to affect the conduct of a government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping, and occur primarily within the territorial jurisdiction of the United States. Today, October 26, 2018, from the Minnesota Star Tribune regarding the arrest of Caesar Sayak. As a lifelong Minnesotan, I have to use this story while recognizing there are dozens of others exactly like this. Headline, Breaking, Bombing Suspect with Minnesota Ties. The article goes on. The Florida man identified as the suspect in connection with several mail bombs sent across the country was once charged in Minnesota for theft and drug possession in a case that was later dismissed, court records show. Sayak, 56, was arrested in Bloomington in 1995 after he was accused of purchasing vitamins and growth supplements from health food stores in Edina in Bloomington, then filling the packages with beans and returning them to receive a refund. He allegedly possessed crack cocaine at the time that he was arrested by police. His case was dismissed in 2005 after the suspected crack cocaine was destroyed without being tested. Court records show that the name and birthday of the man arrested in Minnesota matched that of Syok of Adventura, Florida. The records show that Syok lived in Plymouth at the time of his arrest. According to the criminal complaint, in January 1995, Syok, then 33, went to two health supplement stores, Nature Foods in Edina and Nature's Food Center in Bloomington, where he purchased large quantities of vitamins and would then return them for a refund. When store employees opened the containers, they found that the vitamins had been replaced with beans and the liquid supplements had been replaced with water. He allegedly swindled the two stores of $568 in altered merchandise. Sayak returned to Nature's Food Center, where he was arrested by Bloomington police. When he was taken to the department, he continuously thrashed around in the back seat and was kicking the passenger seat. Once he was taken to jail, the suspected crack cocaine was discovered on the floor of the squad car. According to court records, Sayak was released at some point and arrested again by a warrant issued in September 2005. He was then released from the Hennepin County Jail after posting $5,000 bail.
The case was immediately dismissed afterward because the drugs were destroyed in 1997 and never brought to the city chemist, according to court records. The court records do not explain the 10-year gap between the initial charges and the 2005 arrest. So, without labeling Syoc a terrorist, a news organization most certainly could call the creation and distribution of bombs as terrorism. So, why do we feel it's so taboo to label an American a terrorist? Is it that we can't bring the war on terror home? Or we all suffer from cognitive dissonance? Or is it straight-up racism and xenophobia that has shaped what a terrorist looks like in our collective mind's eye, making our brains unable to reconcile that a person can simultaneously be white, American, and a terrorist? Have we conflated what a terrorist actually is? Because we're so desensitized to mass shootings that we have to see flying planes into buildings to recognize terrorism? I obviously don't have the answers, but I encourage we start the discussion. We need to break the taboo. Terrorists are often white men. There's no denying it. So what will we do about it? Other types of terrorism that do not get labeled as such. Anti-abortion violence. It's considered a form of terrorism. It's often committed in the United States against individuals and organizations that provide abortions or abortion counseling. Incidents have included crimes against people, such as murder, assault, kidnapping, and stalking, crimes affecting both people and property, such as arson or bombing, and property crimes, such as vandalism. Perpetrators may defend their actions as necessary to protect fetuses and are often motivated by their Christian beliefs, leading to anti-abortion violence. But why isn't this Christian terrorism? You know, like Islamic terrorism. Notable incidents of anti-abortion violence include the numbers of murders of a number of doctors and clinic staff in the 1990s. In 1993, Michael F. Griffin shot Dr. David Gunn to death during a protest. 1994, Paul Jennings Hill shot Dr. John Brighton and clinic escort James Barrett to death. In 1994, John Salvi shot and killed two receptionists, Shannon Lonely and Leanne Nichols. Eric Robert Rudolph bombed the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta in protest of abortion, killing two and wounding 111. In 1998, James Cop shot a number of abortion providers, killing one. In 2009, Scott Roder shot and killed Dr. George Tiller. Tiller served as an usher at church. He had previously been a target in 1993 when he was shot by Shelley Shannon. Fun fact, and by fun I mean top off your wine. Tiller wore over 40 pounds of body armor to church every day, including the day that he was murdered. That's over a decade. Whew. Anti-abortion violence is so obviously terrorism, in my opinion. Does our political climate contribute to the view that attacks on abortion clinics or, or providers simply don't arise to the level of terrorism? Eco-terrorism. According to the FBI, in June 2008, eco-terrorists and extreme animal rights activists represent one of the most serious domestic terrorism threats in the U.S. today. They committed over 2,000 crimes and caused over $110 million in damages since 1979 against targets including lumber companies, animal testing facilities, and genetic research firms. Sidebar. My uh, family home growing up uh, was just down the street from a lake. There was this 
beautiful, like $5 million home put on the lake in, I would say like 2005 or something. And some PETA affiliated, not PETA, maybe don't sue me, PETA, um, you know, but some animal rights, uh, rights activist um, came in by boat and burned the entire house down um, because it had a room dedicated to exotic animals. So you can only imagine the variety of animals that were in that room that were destroyed um, as part of the attack. And of course, then the very wealthy homeowner rebuilt an even bigger home and dedicated time to going and getting more of the same kind of animals, I believe. Anyway, end of sidebar. Eco-terrorism. According to the FBI in June 2008, eco-terrorists... Oh, I already did that part, I think. Yep. Uh, I personally think that we will see a rise in eco-terrorism in the coming decade. And I don't just mean climate change. Boom. Oklahoma City bombing. The truck bomb attack by Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols killed 168 people on April 19, 1995, the deadliest domestic-based terrorist attack in the history of the United States since the era of mass lynchings and race riots. It inspired improvements to United States federal security in most buildings. The media and society had no problem accepting this as terrorism. Why? The destruction was so visible? The kids? It was the first act of terrorism on American soil in the emerging 24-7 news cycle. I don't know. As mentioned above, the Centennial Olympic Park bombing in 1996 was a terrorist bombing that occurred on July 27th in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, it was committed by Eric Robert Rudolph. He was a former explosives expert for the United States Army. Two people died and 111 people were injured. This is almost always referred to as the Olympic Park bombing, not a terrorist attack. Why? Again, I can only speculate. Was it that only two people died? Only. The coverage was minimal. Most of us didn't see ourselves as Olympic attendees, so we didn't see ourselves in the victims. The perpetrator had military ties. I don't know. The Wisconsin Sikh Temple shooting in 2012. On August 5th, 2012, Wade Michael Page fatally shot six people and wounded four others in a mass shooting in a Sikh temple in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Page was an American white supremacist and a United States Army veteran from Wisconsin. All of the dead were members of the Sikh faith. So was it the faith of the victims? A white supremacist killed six people at a temple. How is this not terrorism? Is it really that taboo to call an American a terrorist? The Boston Marathon bombing of 2013. On April 15th of 2013, two homemade bombs detonated 12 seconds apart and 210 yards apart at 2.49 p.m. near the finish line of the annual Boston Marathon, killing three people and injuring several, several hundreds more including 16 who lost limbs. Kyrgyz American Brothers, Tsnirnov, I can never say it. I want to say Smirnov, and I know that's not right. Um, Tsarnev, I can't say it. Uh, the Tsarnev Brothers were apprehended and claimed to have been motivated by radical Islamist beliefs. 
to Sarnev. Sarnev? Oh, God, I had it before. I just can't do it when this mic is on. Anyway, I digress. So we labeled them terrorists, right? Was it the coverage? Was it the fact that we could all identify as a person on the street? Or did we just see Brown and then automatically infer terrorism as opposed to another bombing? I think these are all acts of terrorism. What interests me is what makes one act of violence just that, an act of violence, while others are elevated to terrorism. The Charleston church shooting in 2015. Dylan Roof, a 21-year-old white supremacist, went into the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and shot and killed nine people. Roof was was known to be a white supremacist and owned a website where he wrote a manifesto in which he outlined his views toward blacks, among other peoples. Again, a white supremacist, he had a manifesto in which he outlined the views toward black people. He then killed nine people in a church and then, breathe with me, then his entitled ass was hungry. So the motherfucking cops brought him to Burger King before they brought him to the police station. Give you a minute to gather your brain matter and then we will continue. The San Bernardino shooting in 2015. 14 people were killed and 24 injured in a mass shooting at the Inland Regional Center in San Bernardino, California. The Syed Rizwan Farouk and Tashfeen Malik targeted a San Bernardino County Department of Public Health training event and holiday party of about 80 employees in a rented banquet room. Farouk was an American-born citizen of Pakistani descent, while his wife was a Pakistani-born legal resident of the U.S. He had attended the event as an employee before the shooting. Both had become radicalized through jihadist material on the internet and stockpiled supplies in their home. This American terrorist was brown. He was labeled a terrorist immediately. The Orlando Nightclub Shooting, 2016 On June 12, 2016, 49 people were killed and 58 were injured at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida by a 29-year-old named Omar Mateen and a person of interest on the FBI's watch list in 2013 and 2014. This was, at the time, the deadliest mass shooting in modern United States history, later eclipsed by the 2017 Las Vegas shooting. Additionally, it was the deadliest confirmed terrorist attack on the U.S. soil since the 9-11 attacks. This was labeled a terrorist attack almost immediately. Not by all, of course. There will always be the batshit crazy Westboro Baptist shouting the loudest. In my opinion, the skin color of the shooter was a factor in so quickly labeling this a terrorist act. This list is a fractional sampling of the acts of violence that are terrorism. Sandy Hook. Virginia Tech, Columbine, Aurora, etc. These mass and school shootings are all acts of terrorism. Why aren't they covered as terrorism attacks in the media? Sarnayev. 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 I knew I could do it. Part 2. American Terrorists. This is a list of the 2017 American Terrorists top 10 compiled by the FBI. I don't know 
how they ranked these. Maybe popularity, impact, I'm not quite certain they're all over the map. The only consistency is that bombing equals terrorism. 10. D.B. Cooper. In November 1971, a nondescript man in his 40s used cash to buy a one-way ticket from Portland, Oregon to Seattle. Once on the plane, the man using the name Dan Cooper instructed a stewardess via handwritten note that he had a bomb. He showed the bomb to her and asked that she deliver his demands to the pilot. Side note, I would not actually say stewardess. I'm reading verbatim. I would say a wait staff or a flight staff, you know, something more appropriate. Anyhow, I digress. This will happen a lot. He showed the bomb to uh, to her and asked that she deliver his demands to the pilot. Cooper wanted $200,000 in $20 bills, along with four parachutes. When the plane landed, Cooper made good on his end of the bargain, releasing all 36 passengers but keeping several crew members. He then ordered the plane to Mexico City. Before reaching Reno, Cooper gathered the money and one parachute and jumped from the plane, disappearing into the night. The FBI began a manhunt that yielded a mere composite sketch of Cooper along with his tie, which he had removed prior to jumping. The tie provided a DNA sample, but the FBI was never able to find a match. Only a rotting package of $20 bills that matched the serial numbers used in the hijacking found boy, by a boy in 1980 remains. As of 2016, the FBI suspended the investigation, preserving this case as one of the Bureau's greatest unsolved mysteries. Why did D.B. Cooper request four parachutes? Did he die on impact? Or was he able to live the rest of his life as an unidentified thorn in the side of the ever-powerful FBI? Well, I think the reason that he's number 10 is because it's a crown the side of the FBI, now that I'm reading it out loud. Number nine, a confirmed Christian, Luther pastor, teacher, and convicted felon, Michael Bray believes that the killing of those who actively assist in abortions is justified. In the early 1980s, Bray participated in the bombings of abortion clinics and was charged with conspiracy as well as possessing unregistered explosive devices. Bray maintained that while nonviolence may be a strategy, using force is also an option with which he is comfortable. Sounds like Trump. After serving four years for his crimes, Bray returned to his suburban home. Seriously, four years for fucking terrorism? Jesus Christ. After serving four years for his crimes, Bray returned to his suburban home where he is still an active pastor, pastor and teacher in addition to publishing YouTube videos, maintaining his own website, and granting interviews advocating for the end of abortion rights in the United States. I'm just going to go ahead on, the half, on behalf of many uterus around the world and say, Michael Bray, fuck off. Now, number eight. Donna Joan Borup. Donna joined a terrorist group called the May 19th Communist Organization. Really, guys, you couldn't have picked something better than the, the date you decided to have a revolution? I guess 4th of July, we're not much better. Any who's will be, as Gary would say. The group hoped to work for worldwide radical equality, but also advocated a violent revolution against the United States government in favor of communism. 
While participating in what was advertised as an anti-apartheid rally, Borkup tossed a chemical agent at a law enforcement officer, leaving him blind. The rally turned violent, resulting in many other assaults. Borup was initially arrested in 1981, but fled trial and was last seen in eastern New York State. She is still unaccounted for and is considered armed and dangerous. Yeah, sounds like a pretty bad bitch, so she deserves number eight. That's cool. Seven, the motherfucking Boston Tea Party. Could the foundation of the United States of America have much to owe to an early act of domestic terrorism? What? Fed up with the continued British interference with their businesses and wallets, dozens of colonists dressed as Native Americans dumped 342 crates of tea into Boston Harbor on December 16, 1773. This act is the very definition of terrorism as they intended to force the East India Company and Britain to revoke their latest sets of taxes after seeing the lengths the colonists would go to in order to resist what they saw as unlawful interference. The dumping of the tea cost the East India Company the modern-day equivalent of $1 million and was quickly condemned by many, including George Washington. Washington believed private property was sacred and that those who carried out the attack should be required to repay the company for its losses. The men involved in the Tea Party did not pay and were not publicly known until decades later. In fact, the Boston Tea Party was not known as such until the 1830s. The early act of domestic terrorism inspired many others from South Carolina to New York to participate partake in destruction of private property and helped bring attention to a growing call for independence that would ultimately forge one of the strongest nations on earth. Well, that's a different take. Number six, Wisconsin. Wisconsin may be the most famed for its dedication to cheese, but a native son found he had more of an appetite for destruction than dairy. Leo Burt is currently wanted for the 1970 bombing of Sterling Hall on the campus of the University of Wisconsin. Wisconsin, as this Minnesotan would say. The FBI alleges that Burt was involved in the theft of a van that was loaded with explosives and parked in front of Sterling Hall. When the explosives detonated, the fire it created left one young researcher dead and the University of Wisconsin with over $6 million in damages. Bert was last seen driving the getaway car from the scene of the bombing and should be considered armed and dangerous. So clearly, it's all about the bombing. Bombing equals terrorism. It doesn't even really matter how many people died. It's bombing in relation to property damage. That's apparently what we care about historically counting as, as terrorism. Good to know. What's a life? Number five. With a million-dollar bounty on his head, Eric Rudolph eluded capture for his acts of domestic terrorism for more than half a decade. From a devout but anti-Semitic Christian family, Rudolph translated his anger into an intense hatred for abortion and the U.S. government. He sought to take out those he hated through numerous bombings, an abortion clinic in Birmingham, a gay club, a second abortion clinic both in Atlanta, and most famously, the 1996 Centennial Olympic Park bombing. 
The Olympic Park bombing led to dozens of injuries, including several law enforcement officers and the death of one mother. Initially, another man, Richard Jewell, was identified as a suspect in the Olympic bombings because he was found, he had found the suspicious package that contained the explosive materials. Many believe Jewell sought attention to feed a hero complex but that he but that belief led investigators off the trail of the real murderer hmm any parallels to today with bombs trying to assign blame i don't know there are some pieces you guys could put together Jewel was later cleared of all suspicion and authorities began searching for eric rudolph instead Rudolph eluded capture in the North Carolina mountains for more than five years, costing the U.S. government that he hated more than $24 million in the process. Initially surviving off a diet of raisins, trail mix, and tuna, ugh, yuck, no, many believed that the locals of Murphy, North Carolina, later helped Rudolph survive. A rookie police officer located Rudolph hiding behind milk crates near a grocery store, once captured, Ruf Rudolph cooperated, confessing to his crimes. Rudolph was found guilty and is currently serving life in prison. The most, I would say, well-known terrorist um, by name would be that of Theodore Kaczynski, or Ted Kaczynski, if you'd rather. He is more commonly known as the Unabomber, an acronym created by the FBI to describe the tactics of this American terrorist. Unabomber described Kaczynski's university and airline bombing targets. They will really just go for it to try to get that acronym. I guess that's one thing you can say about that FBI. His attacks began in 1978 at a Chicago university and eventually developed into a series of hand-delivered or mailed explosive devices that resulted in over two dozen injuries and killed three American citizens. What were this terrorist's motives, goals, selection process of his victims? It seemed a confusing maze for the FBI until Kaczynski made a key mistake. He sent a 35,000-word essay to the FBI, and the agency published it in the Washington Post as well as the New York Times. Thousands of leads poured in, but one from a David Kaczynski stood out to the agents. David provided the FBI with writing samples and evidence linking the Unabomber's activities to his brother Ted. It seemed as though Ted had lived near or worked at each of his targets before disappearing into his family's primitive Montana cabin. When agents arrived at Ted Kaczynski's residence, they found a live explosive device as well as journals detailing bomb blueprints and plans. With the Unabomber's arrest, the work of over 150 FBI agents across 17 years was rewarded. Kaczynski, Kaczynski confessed, and it is and he is currently housed in a supermax prison in Colorado. One interesting tidbit that I didn't put in, um, but that fascinates me, the linguistic analysis that actually caught him was because he used the phrase, I want to have my cake and eat it too, but he used it the correct way, saying, I would like to eat my cake and have it 
two, which actually makes more sense, and that is the origin of the saying. He used that in his manifesto, and it's something that he would say regularly, and that is a specific line that was pulled out. Interesting. Number three. Now, Patty Hearst. I go all over the place with Patty Hearst because Stockholm Syndrome, was she really part of the Simonese Liberation Army? I don't know. However, I'll go off of somebody else's words here. By the way, sources are going to be posted with the episode on Twitter. The privileged heiress to the Hearst Publishing Empire, Patty Hearst, was kidnapped at gunpoint by the terrorist organization known as the Symbionese Liberation Army, SLA, in 1974. Hoping to hold their new hostage for food aid to the poor, negotiations broke down between the terrorists and the Hearst family after $2 million had been donated. The group turned to using their high-profile captive as PR for their cause to free the oppressed people of the world and to overthrow the capitalist state. Hearst recalls that the group tortured her, keeping her in a closet for 57 days and subjecting her to beatings, brainwashing, rhetoric, and rape. Convinced she had no other choice, Hearst joined the group and began brandishing guns during bank robberies. She narrowly escaped to a California motel near Disneyland, while many of more senior leaders of the group were killed in a fire that destroyed their safe house. The FBI hunted Hearst and the rest of the surviving members before finally finding them in San Francisco. Photographed smiling in handcuffs, many were confused as to whether Hearst's conversion to terrorism was forced or voluntary. Hearst was found guilty and sentenced to seven years in prison, but only served two years. Since her release, Hearst has become an author, actress, wife, and mother, but questions still linger about her true allegiance. Is she the unfortunate pawn of terrorists, or the classic poor little rich girl who has masterfully, masterfully profited from her sensational choices? The Haymarket Affair were these true American terrorists or outspoken activists who pitted against the mighty U.S. government took the fall for their unpopular opinions? In 1886, working condi conditions for the average Americans were bleak. Many men, women, and children worked more than 12 hours a day without safety precautions in jobs that paid less than a dollar a day. In Chicago, the citizens had reached their breaking point. Several workers had been injured during their protest of the McCormick Reaper works. Feeling betrayed by those who were sworn to protect them, a group of men decided to make the police department pay the next day in Haymarket Square. These men, who the government maintained were socialist radical terrorists, refused to peacefully disperse at the Haymarket Square protests on May 4, 1886. In response, Someone in the crowd threw a bomb at a police officer, and shots rang out on both sides of the protest. The incident became known as the Haymarket Affair. When all was said and done, seven police, police officers and one civilian were dead, and many more were injured. No one was able to positively identify the attackers, and the police were unable to gather any concrete evidence. 
Instead, law enforcement officers rounded up scores of immigrant workers, and a high tide of xenophobia gripped not only the city of Chicago, but the nation as a whole. Eight men were charged with the violence in Haymarket Square, and even without any good evidence, the prosecution won convictions against all eight. Seven were sentenced to die, and the eighth was given 15 years in prison. Public opinion began to question whether these men were truly culprits amid reports of a biased jury. Four of the men were hung or committed suicide prior to execution, while the remaining three first had their sentences commuted and then were finally pardoned in 1893. A statute stands at Haymarket Square in remembrance of the police officers who lost their lives, and a similar statute was erected in 1893 for the four men who, through the loss of their lives, brought national attention to the labor, labor movement. And the number one, according to the FBI, most notorious act of terrorism domestically the Wall Street bombing of 1920. Of course, bombs, money, all the ingredients for terrorism. In later years, the FBI would blame a small group of Italian-American anarchists for one of the earliest cases of terrorism in the United States. An ordinary man parked his horse-drawn cart across from J.P. Morgan Building in New York City on September 16, 1920. Several minutes after the cart driver seemingly disappeared, the cart exploded, killing 30 and wounding over 300 bystanders on the crowded New York streets. The U.S. Secret Service, as well as the forerunner to the FBI, searched for evidence to help bring the bombers to justice. In the end, they were left with four posters decrying the U.S. government in support of an Italian anarchy group. It is believed that those responsible fled the United States and more than likely immigrated back to Italy. No charges were pressed in this mystery, and sadly, this would not be the last act of terrorism to plague New York on an early September morning, as the 9-11 terrorist attacks would occur almost to the day 81 years later. So a few talking points. What does this list say about our ideas for terrorism? I get the strong impression that a bomb equals terrorism. It's probably a benefit to the terrorism argument if the bomb explodes and causes some property damage and takes a few lives. Um, but it's a bomb. And I don't understand getting back to the original hastiness for creating this episode, I don't understand how 12 or 13, I don't even know what it is up to now, unexploded pipe bombs uh, going to Democrats across the country is not considered an act of terrorism. Does somebody need to get killed? Does property damage have to take place? Does one need to accidentally explode in the hands of a mail carrier? Or is it simply the optics that the people in power don't want to call it terrorism. I don't know. These are things that I would like for us to all talk about in our daily lives. And of course, if you would let us know on Twitter, we'd greatly appreciate that. In general, what determines how we define terrorism? I 
have this feeling that it's about the weapon of choice and that determines what is violence and what is terrorism. Guns are weapons and they carry out violence while bombs and planes are instruments of terror. Is that because we see the bombs and planes and the carnage and we feel more sympathetic? It is more uh, of that schadenfreude kind of feeling being produced? Is it simply the more uh, coverage that the media covers um, or provides in that instance? Or is it simply the actual optics being able to see the um, half of a building fall, you know, facade falling off or seeing planes taking down the two tallest buildings in New York? Maybe those are the things that are seared into our mind that tell us that we are being terrorized, whereas we have been desensitized to gun violence in a way that we don't see it as terrorism. I don't know. I'm thinking out loud here. Who gets to decide what is and what isn't terrorism? We have that definition, but we're not following it. So why are we still listening to that definition? Do we need to amend the definition or do we need to start actually adhering to that definition and calling terrorists out as being terrorists? This was a topic I planned to cover. But with the recent news, I had to move it up in the queue. I haven't had the time to reflect on my writings, speak with people about their views, so please let me know your thoughts. Thank you for joining us on this special Breaking the Taboo episode of Taboo and Murder. Thank you for listening to Taboo and Murder. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And as always, please let us know what taboo you'd like us to cover. The easiest way to find us is on Twitter at SMTaboo. See our Twitter feed for sources. Thank you.